Hello and welcome back to Control-Alt-Delete. My guest today is the wonderful Scarlett Curtis. I've known Scarlett for quite a few years now. We started following each other's blogs probably around six years ago and we were both writing on the internet and trying to connect and write and discover what we thought about things and it's just so amazing to watch everything that she's been up to and I really enjoyed this chat with her about all things mental health and book publishing. Scarlett is a 23-year-old writer, journalist and blogger. She is the curator of the Sunday Times bestseller and National Book Award winning Feminists Don't Wear Pink and Other Lies. It's an amazing collection of essays by 52 women on what feminism means to them and it's such a great read. You are getting so many diverse voices in there, so many different takes and angles and feelings on what feminism is today and it's published by Penguin and some of the profits from the book also went to a charity which is so brilliant she is the contributing editor at the sunday times style where she had a column a few years ago in 2017 scarlet co-founded the pink protest which is a feminist activist collective it has changed laws and one of them being a bill to help end period poverty and a bill to get fgm into the children's act scarlet's second book which is what we're talking about on the podcast today is called it's not okay to feel blue and other lies also published by penguin and also giving to charity. The book is already a Sunday Times bestseller and it has an amazing range of people writing for it from Sam Smith to Amelia Clark to Dorno Porter and just so so many more. Scarlett is so skilled at curating and editing these incredible anthologies and you should get both of the books and have them on your bookshelf for a day when you need a pep talk. So thank you so much to Scarlett for coming on being so honest and open as always and if you enjoyed this one please leave a rating or a review on iTunes. It really, really helps boost in the charts. And I will see you next week. Welcome, Scarlett Curtis. Hi, Emma. Thank you for coming back on my podcast like three years later. It's mad, isn't it? I know I'm actually really embarrassed about my kit, but we're here in a nice studio your now. Your old kit. No, my I old kit, your yeah. old kit. I felt so glamorous that day. I remember my whole family thought it was so cool because we did it in my family's home and they were like, oh my God, Scarlett's doing a podcast upstairs. <laughs> it is always a really big compliment, actually. Whenever I get asked on a podcast, I'm, I'm always just like, that's so cool. Yeah, no matter it's amazing. What it is. Do you know what? That was actually the night before the launch of the Pink Pro. Protest. Yes. Well, it had a completely different name then, but yeah. yeah, what is now the pink protest? And look at it now. I know. Two laws changed. Two laws changed. You're basically a media empire. Girls wanking that yeah. weren't wanking before. <laughs> you are spreading the love in many ways. <laughs> um, I'm so thrilled that you're on now because we get to talk about your new book as well, yeah. which is so, so exciting. Actually, can you remind me of the title because I'm going to get it wrong? Yeah, it's called It's Not Okay to Feel Blue and Other Lies. I was really worried I was going to say it's okay to feel blue or something. Or don't. It's get it absolutely wrong. so confusing. And also, I've been spelling okay wrong. In the book, it's okay. And I've been spelling it okay. A Y. Oh, yeah, that's how so I spell it. Penguin's quite annoyed at me every time I get the hashtag wrong. <laughs> we got it right, Penguin. But yeah, this is the second time round now for, with publishing a book. And I just wondered, having the first one just kind of go everywhere and do so well and were you able to enjoy that book and everything that came with it I did really enjoy so many parts of it I think I'm quite lucky in that I don't get very nervous doing anything on stage or in front of people 
it's really funny. I get very nervous sort of going on a date or going mm. out for lunch. But for some reason, public speaking, I'm like completely fine with. So I think if I had found that harder, it would have been really hard. I mean, definitely I was so believed in the book. And I think because we were doing it for charity and I really just wanted to get the message out there, especially to girls who maybe didn't already think they were feminists. I pushed myself so hard during it which was quite tough but there were so many parts that I enjoyed and I loved like meeting people and yeah were there times where you were like on stage more than you were off stage because I've heard that can happen I wonder where you're like it's weird not to be on stage yeah I think so and also like I kind of said this as a joke but it was quite true by the end I was like I hate feminists I hate pink (laughs) I hate women (laughs) I just was so sick of hearing myself talk about the same things but it was definitely like an amazing time Um, it was amazing to watch although I'm trying to address my workaholism obsessiveness <laughs> I think it's a, a really important topic though this activism burnout it's not the same as burning out because you I don't know want the financial reward or you want mm. the accolades it's like you're at, you're deep rooted in doing something for a purpose so it's like then where's the line I think as well like I, it's what I've grown up with and I've seen it so much like my first few jobs were all working for charities or NGOs my dad and my mum have worked charities my whole life. And it is, it's this different kind of work ethic because you're not doing it for yourself. So I think people push themselves way harder in those fields than in any other area because, you know, you can't just go, oh, well, actually, I don't need the money and actually, like, I'll be okay because you're like, it's for someone else. Mm. It's very, very weird. I feel like you've spent a lot of your early journalism career myth-busting about Gen Z as well. Yes. And it's like the work ethic thing is is on the list of things that people want to say that they don't do. Yeah, I mean, I think it's actually, I say this a lot, but like, I remember so well being 11 years old and being in school and being our history teacher came in and was like, there's been a financial crisis, none of you are ever going to get a job ever I got told that as well it was like 20% of you will get a job and we were looking at each other like dog eat dog totally and I think since then everyone is just work like there's a huge work ethic because we know that nothing's guaranteed yeah the amount of successful like really successful on paper people when I meet them or interview them and I'm like oh you you must feel totally fine like look at what you're doing Mm. and not one person is like oh no I feel fine and settled no it's because it's so scary and it's so you know that it could disappear I think our parents generation expected that they'd have jobs and that that would be a part of their life yeah and it's just not something that we expect yeah my grandpa recently was telling me about the contract he was in with his work and he was like I was literally fixed in to that company for like 50 years yeah and they wouldn't have been able to get rid of him my grandpa was the same at Unilever and Mm. no one in our generation is like that I don't know one person that feels secure in what they do yeah it's funny because people assume that I like love this portfolio life I do love it but Mm. I actually would have loved a full-time job Mm. at a magazine back in the 90s yes that would have been fun it would have been as fun probably yeah so mental health as a topic is something that is very close to your heart the people close to you know a lot about why it is and obviously I I know a lot about your teenage years and actually like the physical side of that and, Mm. and what you went through but I wondered if you could talk about the link between the physical and the mental and and how that affected you yeah completely so I had a chronic pain issue is kind of the easiest way to say it but from the ages of 14 17 I was 
basically in a wheelchair that whole time. I had to drop out of school and I was just in pain all day, every day. And it was interesting because there was a lot that went wrong during that time. And one of the things that went wrong was they sort of thought I'd made the pain up. And so I was told constantly, like, this is in your head, this is in your head. And I knew that it wasn't and I was always trying to prove that and so I think for that time in particular I was always so focused on not showing anyone that I I was suffering like being so sort of cheery and happy and coping with what I was going through and then when I was 17 I had this operation which got rid of the pain so I was pain-free for the first time in my teenage life and I just had a complete breakdown (laughs) I get imposter syndrome for a lot of things but actually mental health is something I don't have imposter syndrome for because I'm like I've covered every basis of this and I'm very qualified I have a PhD yes in some ways yeah I had about another three years of sort of you know panic attacks every time I left the house total social isolation I would spend months and months on my own even at the age of like 17 I was in and out of rehab I just had a yeah a really really tough time and I think it's still something I struggle with every day like for sure and it's I think it is and probably will be the most defining part of my life is my mental health Mm -hmm. and the things that I have to do to keep my mental health in order yeah I um recently interviewed Liz Gilbert and Mm. she said that when people ask her like what do you do what's your job she's like my full-time job is my mental health oh yeah without a doubt and every single morning that's like the to-do list Mm. basically I actually wrote a blog post when I was like 18 called depression is a full-time job I I also sometimes describe it as having a tiny newborn baby and like every single minute of the day you're just trying to make sure that the baby doesn't cry and do you find that you if you have moments of feeling like really good really confident all good can it slip the actual self-care part of it interesting I think I've gotten to a it definitely can and I without a doubt not perfect and all of that and I think what's hardest is when it slips and actually you haven't done anything wrong. I know my question sounded like it was like self-inflicted. No, 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 because that does happen to me. And if I get tired or if I get hungry or if I've not been doing yoga for a while, like whatever, there's a few things, not been going to therapy, all of that. But it was weird. I had it actually this summer. I had a really, really tough summer and I've been doing everything right. Like all year I'd been (laughs) doing all the things and it still happened and it was really, really bad and it lasted a month. And there was almost this moment of freedom in it because I was like, oh, I actually can't control this. I can do things to help and that's great, but (laughs) I could be doing everything right and it could still happen. And just at this point in my journey with it, I think that's been quite a relief because I just put so much pressure on myself to do all the things that will help me. And it was kind of amazing just to be like, you know what? I don't drink. I don't really go out. I don't I, you know, do yoga every day, all this stuff. And there was a moment in the summer I was like, actually, I'm just going to let myself relax a bit mm. because if this can still happen when I'm doing all of that, then... That is such a good way of thinking about it mm. because it's very freeing to realise you're not really in control. And actually, it is a massive reminder that it's totally, like, physiological, mental. It's kind of illogical some of the time. Completely. And I think there are lots of parts of, like, the new self-care kind of industry that I really admire and think are really helpful, but... I think quite the underlying theme of the self-care movement is trying to pretend you have some control over something that is actually fundamentally uncontrollable. And that's definitely something I needed to be reminded of. This is a chemical thing in your brain Mm -hmm. and you can be doing all the things and that would definitely help alleviate it. Ultimately, you don't have that much control. Your opening essay in the book is really brilliant and you talk about 
trigger warnings and a time where you were watching a play and it kind of like the topics in it well it was 1984, yeah. I mean, yeah, we can kind of know where that, that goes. I think you used the word gaslighting, so mm. that happens in the play and in the book, but I feel like that word has like been spread around and become a buzzword. And I, I've just wondered, purely just a nosy question, but do you think like a popularity of a trend helps... Or do you think it's like annoying for you who actually someone who actually like knows what that word means? I'm like at my core, I'm a huge populist and like absolutely love trends and things becoming popular. So I you actually love a think, meme. I love a meme. I love a trending topic. Like I, I like things becoming part of the public. And I think it's actually been really good with gaslighting. I think we couldn't do this podcast without mentioning Love Island. But I think <laughs> oh my god, of um, course, Love Island. You know, I've been talking and thinking about gaslighting for a while, but. It is something that people don't necessarily know. And I think Love Island really brought it into the open. And I do think it's such an important topic to talk about and just good that people know what that is now. I love how the intellectual meets the real, like, pop culture. Yeah. And, like, you can unpick <laughs> anything. I know. Well, Love Island, I would argue, is very intellectual. It really is. Yeah. It really is. And oh, we yes. know firsthand that the people that go in there are super... Like, I, like, really look up to them. Yeah. I'm like, you know so much stuff. I know. And they have to become... They have to grow up so quickly, I think. Yeah, I know. God, if I went in there. Jeez. So I watched your BBC programme you did, <laughs> front, front Row. Yes. And there front was, Row Late. It was very good. People listening now... After this podcast, go and watch it if you haven't already. And there was a question by Mary Beard, who I know you have a great relationship with, but she kind of questioned the people in the book and said they were all celebrities, which they're not. I know. And Mary Beard's one of my heroes, but me and Mary Beard had a bit of a toss-up on TV, I'd say. Yeah, I feel like it was definitely one of those questions like she knew she had to ask for a bit of juice. But how did you go about picking the amazing lineup? Because it is so diverse. Mm, The whole point of these books, and it was interesting she said that because that is a part of these books. And I've always wanted to make books that would appeal to people that hadn't bought a book on that topic before. So with feminists, there are so many amazing girls who are already feminists who are going to buy a book about feminism. But if you get, you know, Keira Knightley and Jen Rastin in a book about feminism, people that wouldn't have normally bought that would buy it. And then the other 49 women in it are incredible activists who suddenly this whole generation's introduced to who might not have been before. With this book, it was a real mix. I've been really lucky now to kind of work in a lot of mental health activism for a really long time. And a lot of the people that maybe you haven't heard of in it are people I've met during that time, either like on panels or at conferences or just people I was huge fans of their work online and would send like a million DMs on Instagram being like hi can I get your email I have something to ask you and then also we wanted to have a lot of people in it who maybe hadn't spoken about the mental health before there are some really incredible well-known people that talk about it all the time but I think it's it's very powerful when you see someone that I think someone like Sam Smith you like would maybe have no idea that he really struggles and there's a really amazing feeling when you find out that someone I remember that from when I was a teenager and I would like find out that someone I really liked had a mental health problem and it would be the best feeling in the world (laughs) you know sad for them but great for me at the time it's so true and actually those are one of my favorite parts of reading the book Mm. was reading some of the essays where you can tell they're they've never written about it before Mm. and they were actually like oh my god Scarlett's asked me to write about this and what do I write I mean I know I have stuff to write but I'm scared yeah and it's it's a big responsibility as well I think 
because you know people are just trusting such a vulnerable piece of writing yeah in such a warm cozy safe space though i hope so what learnings did you take from the first book and like apply to this one if any because just i mean that's like a really boring Mm. question but i mean like there's illustrations in this one things like that were you just like playing with the form a bit more yeah i think something i really wanted to do was just let people do whatever they wanted to and a lot of people got quite annoyed by that and were like please just give me a word limit or please send me an outline or a format and actually I really pushed through and was like please just do whatever you want and it's resulted in like there's loads of drawings there's loads of poems there's loads of sort of lists and there's even a few playlists of like songs to listen to there's like yeah like really beautiful poems yeah and I think that to me is like our real idea creatively behind the book was like it shouldn't feel like a collection of essays that are all the same length and all on the same topic it should really feel like a kind of total collage of the way different people express this feeling Mm. when you receive the book and you open it on the surface it's like quite a fun book Mm. I know that it's very sad and, and, and very dark and and moving in places it's not like woohoo but I I really liked that about it it's not like a doom and gloom no and I always think that like there's so many funny parts of mental illness or at least in my experience you know there's awful parts but there's also like you know I've never laughed as much as when I was like in rehab or you know in different things and once you start making fun of it I think it's very freeing Mm. actually there's something I didn't put in the book I just remembered but the funniest moment of almost my whole life was it was Halloween and I was in rehab and they wanted us to do Halloween like pumpkin carving so it was fun but we weren't allowed knives because of you know obvious reasons so we had to draw with sharpies on pumpkins and I just remember like five girls sitting around just really sadly drawing with pumpkins drawing with sharpies on these pumpkins did they look more creepy no no they looked less awful creepy. yeah they looked really really bad and they started to rock because we hadn't know scoop them out it's quite funny you Mm. must look back at that time though and think it was like you've lived a few different lives i know i know and i forget things as well there was also a time that we were trying to do baking and we didn't have any scales so we used the scales that they like weigh the patients on (laughs) to measure our flour (laughs) using what you Um, can (laughs) exactly yeah i know it is it's funny and i think I am a person really, like, I often go towards shame and sort of towards shutting parts of my life out and, like, pretending I fit in. And it's good to be able to talk about it because so many people have these parts of their life. Totally. The focus on eliminating shame was mm. so, so brilliant. And I don't know if you've watched the documentary with Jesse Nelson from Little Mix mm. yet, but you know the kind of... Oh, I loved it re- so much. ...connecting with your past self... That was just mind-blowing for me because I'm totally embarrassed by, like, who I was when I was 19. Yeah. Sometimes I think that's why I like Instagram so much. I know people really criticise it, but there'll be moments when I literally scroll through my Instagram to remind myself who I am. I'm like, oh, this is me. I read a think piece that was on that a while ago and I always reread it. It's like, why Instagram makes me fall back in love with my life. Yeah, because I'll also like... Not in a really arrogant way, but it's like, you you know, if you're sharing stuff that you like, you're going to find yourself again through it. I sometimes think I get like depression amnesia as well, where when I'm in a bad place, I forget. Loads of people get this, but you forget any time you've ever been happy. Anytime anything's ever been good and you think it's going to be like that forever and has been like that forever. And genuinely then I will obsessively look through my Instagram and be like that was two weeks ago 
you're going to be fine. Mm. You were happy then. You're going to be that again. Yeah. I'm really into that idea of documenting in the moment, like, I'm fine here. Yeah. Like, little caption to yourself. So I saw um, our mutual friend, your very good friend, Grace Campbell, when she was doing Edinburgh Fringe, she did this thing where she took a selfie after each performance. And she was like, I do like this. Yeah. (laughs) I thought that was really cool. Yeah, exactly. It was like a way she reminded herself. When she was nervous before, how she feels after. And no, I do that. I take a lot of pictures of myself and I think it is to do with that it's like your brain has a very big tendency to forget good things and it's good to remind yourself I used to also always be told to like write a letter when I was happy write a letter to myself when I was sad Mm, that's really nice but I think I used to whenever I was happy I was like I'm never going to be sad again. <laughs> God, that's why Teenage Diaries is such a trip because every other page, like I used to have one where I'd ripped the page with a pen with like how much I hate the world. I know. And then the next page would be like, I love my mum and dad. <laughs> like, it's so weird. So funny. But yeah. I wanted to ask you as well about Something that you wrote about so well in the recent a recent stylist magazine, I think it was the Jamila ep- episode, Jamila's um, episode issue. Yes, and you'd written about this like kind of intersection of like privilege meets pain, kind of mm. mental health, and who's like allowed to talk about it. I'm paraphrasing, but I don't know if you could just like in your own words, kind of say what you said so beautifully because I think we're at a time where we kind of feel still, I say we, Mm. a lot of people out there who are like certain people aren't allowed to feel a certain way because they have so much on paper. And it's just a really interesting discussion. I think it's it's really interesting. And to me, there's like two simultaneous things which seem to contradict each other but don't. And one side of that is that I truly believe that pain is pain. And if you are in pain, to you, that feels like the whole world, no matter relatively how lucky you are. And when we're talking about shame, so many people feel that they are not allowed to be sad. They've got nothing to be sad for or that they've got nothing to be anxious about or that in the book, James Blake, I feel, has summed it up perfectly and his piece is titled, How Can I Complain? And it's that thing of like, when you're feeling depressed or you start feeling anxious or you start having panic attacks and there's you're technically a very lucky person whether that's that you're well off or that you're white or that you're you know able-bodied you can start obsessively thinking and hating yourself for it because you're like how dare I feel this way and that's something I think we really need to take apart and address and the other side of it is that often when we talk about mental health we talk about it as if it's a flat spectrum same for everyone and it really just isn't and the main thing I wanted to show with this book was the intersections of mental health and other areas of life so really talk about how mental health differs in regards to like gender race sexuality physical ability what language you speak and there's so much class is a huge one there's so much nuance there and yeah it's hard because they do seem to go against each other but in my head they really don't because Mm. I think the more we can acknowledge the different ways that different people are suffering and how they can get help the more it can be kind of tailored for each person yes and we can just get rid of that shame exactly and it's like both of those things can both be true yeah of course external factors matter of course that you know I interviewed this amazing woman Chelsea Kwachi who she was the only black woman at Cambridge University out of 250 people and she was like I did have a mental health 
issue that arose from that very specific yeah. experience. So it's like, that's true. But it's also that someone else in that class could have been going through something terrible as well. It, we don't have to like eliminate one or the other type Completely. Thing. And I'm a very like stats obsessed person. And, you know, we talk a lot about male privilege, especially within feminism. And I think it's becoming more and more popular. But if you, men are three times more likely to take their own life than women are. Mm. Those stats so, really shocked me in the yeah, book. Yeah, so in, in that way, it's actually, I think females have a privilege of, we are told from a very young age to talk about our feelings with our friends when men aren't. And then there's also amazing, well not amazing, but really interesting things about access to therapy. So there's an amazing piece by Claire Stancliffe, who's a female football player, and she talks about how uh, mental health illnesses are twice as likely within the deaf community, but there's basically no alternative to talking therapy on the NHS. Mm. So there's no way that you can get treatment for free if you're within the deaf community and there's just so many things that it's very interesting to sort of pick apart yeah I think do you enjoy talking about mental health is there a line for you for example you know you'll probably be doing some events with this Mm. does it help you to talk about it or are you sometimes like I don't want to talk about it all the time I think mostly it really does help me I spent so long trying not to talk about it you know and like no not trying not to but not being able to and feeling like such a freak because I'd be sitting around in like bars with people my own age and they'd be talking about dating and football and whatever young people talk about and I'd be like well I've just been being depressed all week and I can't talk about that so I've got nothing to talk about and I hate not talking about what I'm really thinking about and stuff I mean I think there's definitely points where it it becomes a bit much and I've been much more open in this book than I've ever been before, which to write especially was very like emotional and mm. I had to kind of send it to my family and I prefer that to small talk, to be honest. Yes. There's something very freeing about people knowing exactly who you are and what you've been through. There's like nothing left mm. to kind of say. I, I think in a way that might, that might be a really nice experience in a weird way that people will read the book and then it's just there. And, yeah. and, and there's absolutely no shame. Yeah, totally. It's funny. I think it's the reason I love writing because you can say things exactly how you yes. want yeah. to say them. Yeah, like perfectly communicated. Yeah. yeah. So it's good to have almost as like a reference point of like that's how I feel on that thing because I think Brené Brown says that shame cannot exist if it's met with loads of empathy basically Mm. and it like kills off the shame Mm. like it can't live if you're surrounded by people who care about you and and like have the same thing going on and I kind of felt like that reading your book because when you have 70 essays like all together it doesn't feel like a it's never been a taboo in my head but it doesn't feel like anything like that that crazy to use that word you know what I mean yeah completely and that was really the idea and I also think there's so much power in reading reading about an experience that someone has had that is similar to your own especially if you feel very alone but there's also it can sometimes be quite hard or at least it used to be for me when I would read people talking about mental health like a book by one person and I so was so desperate to relate and sometimes when I wouldn't that would be quite hard and almost more isolating because mm. I'd be like oh well I'm worse than that person all my problems are very specific compared to theirs and what I hope with this book is there will be at least one thing in it where you're like that speaks to me that's so interesting because I find that sometimes with one essay by one person not that I'm trying to like get them to solve my problems but I'll be thrown off by like one thing yeah like they'll say oh and this works for me and I'll be like well that doesn't work for me or (laughs) or they'll say like that they're really religious and and like going to church helps or whatever Mm. and which is totally fine but I personally that doesn't apply so it's like ah you know and so reading the book yeah so much jumped out I know exactly what you mean and that can be a bit hard so hopefully by having so many people in it 
there'll be one thing in there. Yeah. I haven't asked you this yet, so I really wanted to. You've edited and curated and written in this book, and it is, like, as you say, a meaty, very thick anthology. For people listening who might be interested in, like, a career in editing or curating or writing, what was the process like getting together that many writers? It was really amazing. I loved it. I mean, it was a lot easier this time than the last time because we had a kind of proof of concept and people knew what we were asking them. I think the first time it was really quite out of the blue. I really love writing myself, but I also love that sort of project building and community building and talking to people through that. I guess the job it's closest to is a job in, in publishing, which is such an amazing mm-hmm. industry to work in. I do have sort of felt like I've worked at Penguin for the last two years. I've spent so much time there. And I guess you're basically doing like the same job as an editor at Penguin. I mean, I, I mean, my editor was at so like absolutely not. <laughs> I know. You have nothing Sorry. to do with contracts. <laughs> the fun bit, at least. I do the very fun bit and, and get to leave when the boring bit starts. But I also think the thing that has just sort of been the like crux of my career, I guess, and everything I love is just bringing people together to do something like whether that's a campaign or books like these or anything we do with the pink protest or any project I ever do I have this real desire it might be because I didn't go to school but I have this real desire to like work with other people and I think often people feel they have to do things alone and you know get up all that energy to write something or do something and as soon as you pull people in whether you're making like a zine for your school or a blog or a podcast or a you know campaign or a charity whatever it is just find your like team I think is what I'd say mm-hmm. and it will make the whole thing feel so easy yeah has your relationship changed at all with social media over the years I know mm. that you've always you've always been a real advocate for how it's helped you yeah I am a real advocate do I you do kind find of use it, it less or I you know what's weird I've never used it that much I mean anyone of my friends who's listening to this knows I never reply to my texts because I find texting very stressful for my phone quite stressful I've heard sometimes. you say that before which is why I do text you but I also know at the back of my no, mind that it, you might like I, a few days a few fine. days yeah I basically think I, like I write that, texts though. like letters so I sit down for like an hour and reply to all of them in one go I can't do it like on the go I think I'm quite lucky in that because I'm not one of those people that's like obsessively scrolling ever that's so good and I've got boundaries now as well like I don't reply to many of my DMs and that isn't because I don't love it when people send them but I emotionally like cannot do that I mean not Mm. that I get that many but it emotionally it takes me so much to reply even Mm -hmm. to like a text from my mum so I try not feel any guilt around that because I think ultimately you have to make these platforms like work for you totally and actually you know when you said that thing about how you're like I can't like immediately reply to all messages Mm. I love when people do that even in work I've got a colleague who is like she she won't answer emails unless it's urgent like over a weekend or at night and I just think seeing someone like have their own boundaries makes you better at yours yeah I hope so the thing you know that you know that time screen time thing oh yeah everyone's not using the thing I spend most of my time on my phone is Candy Crush or this other like game I've got I wonder if there's a study that says that actually that's really good for you oh well I I keep telling people it's like meditation but I don't think it is but it does help me so now and it's what I do like when I'm anxious on the tube or just anxious in general I just whip out my candy crush so good it's good that you know that because I think you could be tempted to be like right I'm going to scroll through a million people's lives now That's definitely the better answer. I also follow too many people, so I just never see anything. Yeah, same. I need to mute some people. Like yeah, mute is brilliant. Mute is brilliant. Yeah. Because you can still search them out, and, yeah. but it's just like, yeah, yeah, an overload. Also, wait, one more thing on that. that 
I was thinking about recently. I know a lot of people that get messages and feel they have to reply and it's amazing that they do. But I think the reason I feel so comfortable with sort of leaving some of them be, at least for a while, is because I actually used to obsessively write messages to people. It was like one of my things. And I sometimes worry I'm going to become friends with someone and then they're going to check, like go to DM me and then it will come up with this crazy message. But I, whenever, when I was like really, really sick and I would read something on mental health or someone had said something or something would help me, even if it was just like a book or a show or whatever, I would always send people the letter. And I, if they ever replied, I'd like kind of get a heart attack and <laughs> really hate it. But it was such an amazing process for me to like say how I felt and put into the world like, I've been feeling like this and I read your book or watched your show and it really helped so as an ex message sender I feel a bit better Mm. I just know I think it's the process of writing it that really helps yeah that feeling of telling someone that their work has helped you or moved you I hope that feeling never fades for all of us yeah because I used to I know I used to be like a real fangirl oh I'm but I still am I'm just trying to contain it as a 30 year old woman now no I still totally am and I hope that never goes exactly that's one thing when I first met you I just loved about you because you you were just you would defend people or you'd be like this person might be in the news for this but they really helped me and you've always championed people Oh, I hope so. I think maybe I just get really overexcited by things. And yeah, I love media. It's like a weird level. Mm. Do you ever feel that? I'm like, yeah. I don't think I should love books this much. Well, I don't. Sometimes it's like the most comforting thought I have is if everything goes and I'm I'm left with nothing, I can read my yeah, some books I like. Watch TV and miss podcasts. Yeah. It'd be great. But I heard Taylor Swift say actually on a recent thing that basically anyone that makes you feel bad for loving some something is yes. like avoid them. I saw that. Like no one should ever I ever make you feel bad. Die hard love Taylor Swift. So that's the level of my fandom. Same. So just lastly, you are a bit of a trendsetter. In what you do. Oh my god, I sound like a six-year-old man. <laughs> Follow the trend, Scarlett. Absolutely not. Um, but you, you, you do always have like fun things like your sleeve. You might not for this book, but <laughs> you might. But at time of recording, it's out in a few weeks. Yes. Are you planning anything for that launch week that we should keep an eye out for, or is it just like go by the book? I think go by the book. We're doing a little bit less this time because I think it's more of a serious topic and. Uh, yeah also just to vaguely protect myself we are going to be doing a lot of events though so probably follow my instagram to find those and i'm going to be posting some little bits from the book on my instagram as well in the lead up which will be fun your events are always brilliant i think the events will be fun yeah they'll be really fun just get the book and hope people like it oh the audiobook's gonna be really fun there's like 40 of the people have recorded their own essays for the audiobook so if you're an audiobook fan i think this might be a really good one to get on audiobook you're doing really cool stuff in the audio space well i i mean you're obsessed with audible i'm obsessed with audio and audible and i'm an audible master i think i've spent like weeks of my life listening to audiobooks so it's i like to think i know the space quite well you do you do that's awesome i can't mm. wait to listen to that as well mm. well thank you so much thank you i love thank you so you. much oh, you're it's the so best. nice we've had such like i feel like we're always holding hands for a while i know i just feel really smug and proud that i like followed you back when I you had your blog you. i was like i loved you then and i love you now but uh, what was look your at girl you about town <laughs> Is yeah, it? girl lost in the city. Girl lost in the city. Yeah, I still get still mail. I, I still get mail like on the parcel that says that, and I'm like, <laughs> oh my god. But you know, 
It's mm. all part of the journey. Exactly. Well, that was the trend then, wasn't it? Weird blog names. It was. What was yours? Gra- Teen Granny. Teen Granny. Yeah. yeah. When you yeah. search that now, you just get porn. So oh god, can't yeah. recommend it. Yeah, not great SEO. Yeah, it doesn't actually like Google just stops recommending it. You know, it's like mm, we know what you search for. <laughs> oh, well, congratulations um, on on your amazing second brilliant book and um i'll put all the links below so people listening can go buy it thank Thank you. you bye